Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Today my guest is Mary Justine Todd, founder and executive director of Shamsaha, the first and only 24 hours a day, seven days a week, domestic violence crisis prevention program operating in the Middle East. Shamsaha, which means her son, was launched in 2016, and they have 120 trained and certified women's crisis advocates working in English and Arabic. There's also a new app that offers a wealth of information and research, as well as text, phone, and video crisis counseling. Mary Justine is a former humanitarian aid worker with master's degrees in public health and international studies, who joined me to talk about the problem of domestic violence in the Middle East and the work her organization is doing to support women when they have nowhere else to turn. How are you doing? Hi, uh, I'm very fine. How are you doing, All is well in the train. It's hot, but. Um, well, yeah, oh, here too. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you about, I, I'm very excited to get into like a topic that isn't exciting, it's upsetting uh, about domestic violence in the Middle East. But um, I just, let's get started off by trying to frame frame the problem. Um, because I don't, you know, I read a lot about it in the Middle East, but how is it, is there a difference to globally in terms of rates of domestic abuse and violence? So the global average of violence against women, um, as estimated by the World Health Organization, is that approximately one in three women will experience abuse or violence at some point during their lifetime. The averages vary in different regions of the world just slightly. Like they might go from 28% to 34%, but all over the world, the prevalence, prevalence rates sort of hover in that area. And there's no significant difference to the prevalence um, here in the Middle East. The one thing that is different here though, is that the response services to support victims of abuse are still sort of in their infancy. Okay. And when you read about domestic violence here, there's a common thread, there's a common narrative that it's more difficult here because things are done behind closed doors. What, I mean, when I read that, I think, well, you know, it's always behind closed doors. So I just wondered if you could speak to that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the same all over the world. Um, these things happen in the private sphere. These things are unseen. Um, they are also humiliating and embarrassing and all over the world considered um, private family matters. It doesn't matter if you're in New York City or if you're in Manama here in Bahrain. It is an issue that people don't see and they don't talk about and they don't like to talk about. Um, I will say that in certain Western countries, the discussion around um, violence against women sort of began to grow in this during the women's rights and the civil rights movements of the 1960s and 1970s. So our conversation, like for example, in the United States is a bit um, 
a bit more mature. It's it's been going on for a bit longer, um, but we face all the same challenges here. And now the conversation is also is also happening here. Now every country and every culture has good things and bad things, right? So for example, um, in New York. If somebody experiences, let's say, a sexual assault, they might be, yes, humiliated and embarrassed to talk about it, but there'll be a bit more, just a bit more openness. Like I said, we've been having that conversation for a bit longer. So on that side of things, women in New York have this benefit of this older, more open conversation. But on the flip side, most women in New York are totally alone. They're totally by themselves. They don't have a support network. Whereas here in Bahrain, for example, that conversation may be a bit harder to have, but they're going to be surrounded by auntie, mother, cousins, you know, family members to provide that support network. So it's a problem. It's a difficult problem all over the world. And every community, like I said, just has pros and cons. And so wherever you're at, you just have to figure out how to capitalize on the, the benefits and the good things that exist in that country in order to support the victims. How about when it comes to leaving? Because I don't know that there's a shelter system here um, in this region that there would be um, obviously an overburdened shelter system back in North America and other parts of the world. But yeah, what, what's it like here? So I can say Alhamdulillah in Bahrain where our headquarters are, we have a very, very good, um, very progressive um, government-run domestic violence shelter. Um, it is a very good institution. It accepts everybody, um, Bahrainis, expatriates. Um, I believe there's also one shelter in um, Dubai. Um, and the other GCC countries, there are some and some not. There, some countries have better services than others. Like I said, kind of like the conversation, the response services and the support for victims following an incident of abuse here are still in their infancy, but you know, they're growing. Um, now, one challenge that we do have here is that women are required to get a police report before being admitted into the shelter. Now, this policy is designed in good faith and for the right reasons, right? It's designed to make sure that the systems are there to support the right people, that vulnerable people have access to limited resources. So it's done for the right reasons, but unfortunately it has unintended negative consequences because most women actually don't wanna to report to the police. They're scared of the police. They don't want any backlash or retaliation from the perpetrator. They don't wanna embarrass their families. They don't wanna embarrass their children. They just wanna be safe. But when they can't get themselves into a safe place without that police report, they often opt not to go at all because they don't want to make that report. So it's really a big, a big barrier. Like I said, one that's in place for the right reasons, but perhaps is having unintended negative consequences. So you founded Shemsaha in 2016 and you've recently expanded with an app. It's a 24 hour call center. Can you describe what you do and what population, like what is it across the region now? Just how does it all work? Sure. So yes, we started our services here in Bahrain in 2016. So first I'll tell you a little bit about exactly what we do and then how it works through the expansion and through the mobile app. So Shamsa is the first and only 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, victims crisis support response um, program in the Middle East. 
We offer 24 hours a day, seven days a week, English and Arabic support for victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, sexual trafficking, any type of gender-based violence um, for women and girls over the age of 13. Between the ages of 13 and 18, we do offer support, but it's limited support. It's different than what we offer for women, of course, following the, the laws of our host country. So what we do is provide emotional support, informational support, and logistics, both in the purse, both on the phone and in person here in Bahrain. So that might mean just somebody being on the telephone when a victim calls to say, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. You don't deserve this. You didn't do anything to cause it. Maybe she doesn't know what to do or where to go. She doesn't know where the police station is. She doesn't know how to file a police report. So we will get her all that information. We'll make sure that she has all the information that she needs to make well-informed decisions that are right for her and her family. Um, here in Bahrain, only for now, we do offer face-to-face -face support as well. So if somebody needs to go to the police station, the hospital, or the courts, our volunteers will support them in person as well on the spot immediately when they call and request that support. Now, what we are doing with the support of the L'Oreal Fund for Women, which is our primary funder for this project, um, is expanding our services from Bahrain throughout the GCC, the Arabian Gulf region, as well as into Egypt. Um, through the development of a novel, novel uh, mobile phone application, which basically takes what we do for victims and puts it on the app that makes it now available for everybody. So anybody in the world, frankly, but we're targeting first the Arabian Gulf, um, can download the app and they can click chat now. Now there's an app to app um, text, there's app to app calls, app to app video calls, and there's also cellular to app call. And I can explain that in a minute. But basically now what it means is that anyone from all over the world or the GCC, they can download the app and be immediately connected to one of our volunteers who is on duty on the other end of the app for this um, crisis line. The crisis line just now exists on the app. Further, um, what we have also available is extensive um, research that we have done for each country that we're focusing on first, like I said, the Arabian Gulf. And we have listed up all the relevant laws and legislations that might um, apply to victims of abuse on our actual app where people can go and check out and see what the law says, see what the rights are, see what the process is. There's also a section um, entitled resources where they can choose their country. For example, if you choose Saudi, whatever, then you can go and you can click food options, shelter options, lawyers, therapists, and then each category that you choose, the app will then generate um, um, a list of resources of that category, which then you can go out on your own and, and contact or, or utilize in however way is appropriate. Additionally, there's a section called survivor support tools, which is where people can go and learn about gender violence and domestic abuse and determine for themselves sort of what's going on, just to spread awareness and create an understanding of what may or may not be happening to them or someone that they love so they can, again, like I said, determine the best way to go forward for themselves and their families. Because I will say this, one of the most important and key tenets of what we do at Shamsaha is that we never, ever, ever give advice. We only give information. We are in no position to tell somebody what's best for them and their family. What we do is try to provide them with all the details, the information to answer their questions. So they actually feel that sense of empowerment. They start to gain an understanding that they have decision-making authority over their lives. And hopefully then they'll be able to go forward in a more positive and, and healthy way. Okay. And that goes for you. If you have someone in your life who's going through this, you can't give them 
there's no point in giving in them any advice. Absolutely. People don't follow advice. I don't follow advice. You don't follow advice. Nobody follows advice. They do what they want to do when they're ready to do it. And also the unfortunate thing that happens if you have a friend or family who's member who's going through this, when you give advice, a couple of things happen. One, they don't follow it. And then they feel bad. They feel like they've let you down. And then they feel even worse about themselves and they don't want to come back and talk to you. Two, by giving, them my, by giving them advice, you're actually doing the same thing that a perpetrator of abuse is doing, which is taking away their power. It's telling them you don't have authority, you don't have power, you don't have ability to take care of yourself. Three, what can end up happening to you, the witness, the bystander, is that you develop what we call compassion fatigue. You think to yourself, oh my God, I've told her to leave like 10 times. What can, what can I do? But if you just listen, then you're not going to feel fatigued and burn out because you haven't been frustrated over and over again by giving her advice that she ignores. Okay. And there is a cycle of abuse, right? Like there's a pattern to how this develops. So could you sort of walk us through that for people to understand that it doesn't just come out of nowhere? Yeah, sure. So nobody gets beat up on their first date, right? That's not how it works. Like abusers are, are tricky and psychologically uh, manipulative. Um, and the cycle, as you describe, has um, three primary phases. So let's start first with uh, honeymoon phase. Everything is wonderful and beautiful, and I love you, and blah, 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 and um, mashallah, I love this guy, I want to get married, and blah, 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 blah. And then slowly you move into tension building phase. Like there's maybe small arguments, like small problems, tension, the victim or potential victim at this point feels like she's walking on eggshells, you know. He may be enforcing trivial demands. Like I told you, I want the salt shaker on the left side of the table, not on the right side of the table. So she kind of never knows where she stands, like always feeling on edge. And then the explosion happens. And that's when the violence or the abuse occurs. And then immediately thereafter, we go back to the honeymoon phase, which is, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I promise I'll never do it again. And we human beings, alhamdulillah, by nature, we are hopeful. And that is a good thing. We don't want to live in a society where people don't have but when someone is hopeful and the perpetrator, who is someone we presume that they actually love, says they won't do it again, we believe them. And so we go through the honeymoon phase, gifts, apologies, promises for the future. Slowly we reach back into the tension building phase. Little fights, again, build up, build up, build up. And then eventually we go to the explosion phase. And what we know is that every time that cycle completes, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. But it could take a year or more, two years, to complete it the first time. So the first time it happens, right? You think, okay, it was just a one-time thing and he promises to be better. And maybe nine months later, you have a baby. And then maybe only after that does the cycle complete again, right? It's very tricky. It doesn't happen overnight. But eventually, as the years and years and years go by, every time that cycle completes, the duration of the cycle is shorter and shorter. So after 10 years, a victim may be going through the cycle, a complete cycle every single day. Are there times in a woman's relationship where she's more vulnerable to violence? Yeah, interestingly, the most dangerous time um, for a woman to experience abuse is when she's pregnant, which you wouldn't expect. As a matter of fact, you might think indeed that would be the time least likely where she would be um, uh, a victim of abuse. But in fact, all the public health data shows that violence increases during pregnancy. To be honest, I'm not sure why. I don't have the answers to that. Um, another time um, violence increases is during holidays. 
when people are together, people are home from work, sometimes people are drinking, things like that. Um, uh, additionally, uh, it, it's interesting, there's specific places where you're more vulnerable. So if you start um, having an argument with someone who is abusive, move out of the kitchen, try to move into the bedroom because there's weapons in the kitchen. It's a more dangerous place to be fighting. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. And do you, I've heard you mentioned before maids, domestic help. Do you help them as well? Yes, of course. So our mandate is specifically focused on victims of gender-based violence. However, we make a, um, a, a special um, accommodations and special sort of exception for housemaids. So if we get a call from anybody who's working as a domestic um, worker uh, in a home, if she's experiencing any sort of hardship, we take the case on. So maybe she's reporting that I don't know, she didn't get paid or she's not getting food or we've had cases where like it's cold at night in the winter and they don't have blankets. So even though that's not specifically a case of gender violence, because of the increased vulnerabilities that housemaids face, going back to that reason of these things happen behind closed doors and housemaids live only their entire life, their working life is behind those closed doors. They have such an increased level of vulnerability that we always provide support for them. Now, we're not immigration authorities. We don't have the resources to go and fight for back pay and things like that. But we do whatever we can to mitigate the hardships that she may be going through and to give her information. Maybe it's about her um, diplomatic mission, her embassies, uh, where she's at, or maybe it's to help her get a SIM card, something like that, so she can contact her family. Um, uh, like I said, just because they are uh, existing behind those closed doors in a vulnerable way. And we tend to imagine that the jump between, for example, not giving someone food or blankets and actually beating them up, it's not a very big jump. So if a woman is being abused in that way, there is, it's not a low likelihood that she would experience another type of abuse as well. Maybe she just didn't tell us yet. And there is some benefit, like obviously there's benefit to having a place to go and people to help you. But when it comes to trauma and people who experience trauma, is it is if you I can excuse me access a, a service like yours does it make it easier to get over this yeah so the world health um, organization estimates that the number one predictive factor of whether or not someone will actually develop post-traumatic stress disorder following an incident of violence abuse or trauma is how they're treated in the immediate 24 hours following the incident which is why actually having a crisis advocate with you is so important because it will significantly reduce the likelihood of them developing post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd and interestingly um, something that i've recently been researching um, just to, you know, a lot of people think like, well, what does this have to do with me? Like, I'm not being abused and I don't know anybody who's being abused. So like, you know, sorry for them, but it's sort of a niche topic, right? So something to consider, why does it affect you, right? Why does it affect you if you're not being abused? Because violence against women affects everybody. Here's how. 50% of victims develop post-traumatic stress disorder. 50% of people globally, victims or other, who develop PTSD will actually lose their employment or become financially dependent. So in Bahrain, sorry, in the Middle East, there's 277 million women living here approximately, okay? 
The World Health Organization estimates that annually, not in one's lifetime, but annually, one in seven women will experience abuse in this region. So if there's 277 million women and one in seven of them experience abuse, that's approximately 39 million women. If 39 million women are abused this year alone, 50% of them develop PTSD and 50% of them lose their jobs, that means approximately 8 million women this year alone are gonna lose their jobs or become financially dependent directly as a result of abuse. Now I ask you, Anne-Marie, can you think of a time in our recent history where overnight 8 million people might've lost their jobs? For example, during a global pandemic, mm -hmm. the public and private sector scrambled to pick up the pieces because if 8 million people lose their job in one year, this is gonna wreak havoc on the economy and everybody is gonna suffer. Whether or not you're being abused or not, you are gonna feel the effects. That is shocking. Okay, so what would your dream be? Uh, I mean, you've done so much already and the app is amazing that you've got this in place and you've got L'Oreal as partner. What's your dream? <laughs> Where do you wanna go with this? Well, if I'm being honest with you, my dream is <laughs> I need about $800,000. I need to redevelop the app. I want to make it stronger and more robust, which is going to cost another couple thousand dollars. Uh, sorry, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and then I want to be able to build and grow actually in-country face-to-face services for victims throughout the region like we have here in Bahrain. Because the app is the driver of the expansion. But initially, during the initial first few years, it's going to be, services are going to be only virtual, right? I don't have 100 volunteers in every country like I have here in Bahrain. Um, so I'm currently fundraising to try to develop, like I said, for, for another two years, I need about $800,000 to build a better app and, and expand um, the support services in a really robust way. Let me explain okay. this to you. So the app actually, it has three primary interfaces. So the first um, interface is just for the general public. Like they can go and they can download resources and they can read about, you know, laws and whatever. The second interface is the chat feature for the victims, right? For the actual, the actual crisis line. The third interface is for our volunteers. So from the back side, our volunteers actually click login, they put in their login credentials, and then that's how they're there to support the victims. And so the app manages, like from the back end, the app manages the calendar, the app knows who's on duty today. If I'm on duty today and you're a victim and you click chat now, I'm gonna get that call. Whereas tomorrow, if somebody else is on duty, when the victim clicks chat now, that chat's gonna go to the other volunteer. But what we need to do, what I learned about halfway through the three year long app development process, which as it turns out, it's really hard to build an app. <laughs> I learned that actually this should have been two apps, not one. You can think of it as an Uber driver and an Uber user, right? Mm. So an Uber driver has their own driving app as the driver, as administrators. And then an Uber user has a different app. Now the two apps talk to each other, but they're different. Mm -hmm. So I need to take what I've done, basically everything in one app, all the features and split them into two, because in that way, both of them will be more robust and be able to provide a better, more comprehensive services to the victims and, and the volunteers alike. So okay. anyone out there looking to, you know, invest in some do-gooding, we are available. <laughs> yes. A worthy cause. Well, it's really impressive what you've done in a short time, you know, and, uh, um, obviously you have to see things sometimes before you can realize what they, uh, they need to be. That's the unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they need to be born and then you're like, Oh yeah. 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 We've, we've learned well, a lot of lessons along the way. 
Well, good luck with everything. And thank you so much. It's great to talk to you about this and you're doing such good work. Look forward to watching you expand. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.